Welcome back to the Master Keys Podcast. Yes, gang. Thank you for listening. My name is Neil Andrino. I am here with my good friend. Who? Who, me? I was talking about Mark. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Chandler. Thanks for listening. Thanks for chiming in. As always, we appreciate the support. If you find anything interesting about the podcast, please make sure you like, subscribe, uh, leave a comment below, and maybe even share this with someone if you think they might get some value out of it as well. Yeah, and this is your first time here. It's a podcast about real estate, investing, um, just, I'd say, general progression with your finances. We don't get too deep into other things. It's predominantly around real estate because that's what we're heavily invested in. Yeah. Um, but we try and touch on everything, give you some news updates, talk about what we're doing in our lives as investors and business owners, um, and then also kind of cover what's what's going on in the world. What's popping? Let me just yeah. turn off my BlackBerry. Chandler starts every episode with his BlackBerry on, and it rings at least once, and then he has yep. to turn it off. Um, cutting edge technology here at the master keys podcast, cut, cut so. the diesel generator on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so season two, episode 30, 30. Episode 30, we are, oh my gosh, can you believe this? We are reaching the end of July, man. That's sad to say. I, this is the girlfriend said this to me last night. She's like, it's basically August. And I was like, okay, all right. Okay. Everyone. That's the worst. That it's basically it's, August, which might as well be September. I can't believe it's the it's fall already. Basically 2023. Um, but I actually wouldn't mind skipping ahead to 2023. I think things will be better. Things are rough right now. I kind of want to see the end of this year. Yeah. things. A, a lot of you have been asking about what people are predicting, what's going to be you know, happening over the next six months and 12 months. We're going to dive into that next episode. Uh, today, what do we have on tap, Neil? So, yeah, we're diving into, again, what we're up to. You just closed on a really big deal, so that'll be interesting to hear. We have some news from around the world, some interesting stuff from overseas, down below us and some stuff within Canada. We got some updates from you guys listening. I appreciate you sending those over to us. So we're going to talk about some things you guys uh, corrected or gave us some info on that we touched on in previous episodes. Uh, and then we're going to get into something that we've been asked about a few times. Um, I'm actually going to I'll call out who, who asked us for this time most recently, but going over some mistakes and lessons learned that we yeah. have. We've always talked about all the, the great things and all the stuff that we've done that worked really well. But I think we've kind of overlooked the fact that we've both made a bunch of mistakes and continue to make a bunch of mistakes. And it's part of learning and growing a business. And so we're going to try and yeah. dive into some that we both kind of have and some of the biggest ones that we have. And I think we'll end up coming back to this and doing another episode with a million more. Like I was saying to you when we were chatting about this before we, we started recording, I'm like, I could do a docu-series I know. on all the mistakes Neil that I've like, made. I've got seven lists. I'm like, let's try to keep it to three and three so we don't have to do a whole docu-series on Neil's errors. <laughs> I, we talked a little bit about this in earlier episodes, um, just giving our background and kind of how we started and, and so on and so forth. But for some people who haven't seen that, or just now maybe with a little bit more context and, and whatnot, it's, it's a good time to revisit that Um and it got me reflecting on some things of what I've actually done poorly in the past and continue to do poorly. It, it's probably a good thing to do because then you're kind of more cognizant as you move forward. But when we did our like little bio intros there and go back if you haven't heard them before and we talk about kind of how we progressed, we we only introduced the things that gave us forward progression. Yeah, you know, We're always like, okay, so we did this, we flipped this place, we did this business, flipped that, and things like all, this is all forward, forward, forward. You don't go like, and I did this business, and I went back to zero, right? I'm adding a mistake here. Now so, and now this. he's put number four on yeah. there. So it's slowly, it's slowly trickling up. And like I said, I, I had seven, but I could honestly bring up a hundred. Like there's so many 
so many lessons learned. And the only way you get those is by doing it. So like when I think a lot of people are nervous to start because what if this, what if that? And when they hear yeah. people's stories, it's like, oh, well, they did it and it went perfectly and it went well. No, they had that what if that and what if this, like those took place. And it's how you deal with yeah. those. That's what kind of makes the difference in your ability to grow and, and, and be successful in the, in the business. It's, it's how you handle the issues, not necessarily the success. Yeah, That's also I, a big part of it. But And I think some of the, yeah, sometimes people need to understand that the best deal you do is the one you, or the best deal is sometimes the one you don't make, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, a lot of the time. We talked about that too, about, you know, not trying to take advantage of every opportunity. I've been a little bit guilty of that, but I've got that on my list of mistakes. But before we get into that, um, Neil, what's what's new in your life? I'm getting mangled here. Um, so again, on the multi-unit side of things, nothing out of this world. I just keep hearing the news of people pausing projects and stuff like that. One that's kind of exciting is I'm finally getting to a point, and maybe we'll flash a picture up uh, of getting a little further along with the development application for a project I have in downtown. I got some renderings done, and the renderings are exciting. Like when you oh, get them, it's yeah. like, ooh, this is cool. Look like, at me go. Yeah, look at me go. Like I, I've had floor plans and like all the paperwork for a long time, and then we just whatever through. Is this down the south end? Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the south end one here. And so for people who aren't from Halifax, south end is like the neighborhood past our downtown core. The way our peninsula is shaped like it's as far as you can go and then you hit a park and water yeah um, and it's historically the most affluent area it's also where the hospitals and the universities are yeah exactly so the, the pricing's been good i'm like snugged in an area that's predominantly student housing and like a mixture of higher density zoning so it's it, it's almost all student housing and that's what i'm going to do i bought a house converted to a triplex i'm going to tear the triplex down and hopefully put up 30 ish units you were trying to get an easement over a neighboring property, and this was part of your problem. So where are we at on that? So I was just beating my head against the wall because I have a condo building next door to me, and my lot slopes down, which is great because it allows me to get easy access to underground parking, but my lot's so narrow that I don't have enough room to put a laneway. Mm-hmm. So there's already a laneway right next to me for the condo building that has the same style lot to access their underground. And so I was like, oh, perfect. Like, we can share this and I can get access into mine from the side of my building. You thought they were just going to give it to you. <laughs> I thought they would just be like, oh, yeah, no problem. Here you go. Maybe we'll just deed the land over to you, too, while we're at it. Yeah, like big fan of the podcast. Big, big fan of the pod. <laughs> uh, come to find out, didn't go like that. Odd. It's a, it's a small building, too. I think it's like 14 or 18 units, which, which makes it really tough, I find, because it's like if you have like two people that are like nine nah, interested, yeah. you're going to fail to vote. Um, so we never actually physically got to a vote, but it took me so long to get in front of them. And they wanted so much information and they were just, I think they wouldn't even look at it. Like I was going to offer them $150,000 plus I do all the maintenance moving forward. Mm -hmm. Plus I pave, repave it when I'm done. Plus, 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 plus. Yeah. And that didn't even move the needle. And there's only 14 units in this place. It's just like a big giant house effectively. And I'm like, you guys are each going to turn down 10 grand for me to use something that's already established. And for me to tear down this super hideous building next to you and put a brand new one up which yeah. will increase your property values. So I was like, okay, you guys really don't want to work with me here. And so I was going to get to the point where I'll probably be into it for a minimum a quarter million dollars up front, mm-hmm. uh, plus the ongoing maintenance and expenses. And I was kind of like, what am I going through this hell for? And it's going to delay my things by years to get this approved. The new center plan, the whole idea was, is that they're being a little bit more modern and realizing that you don't necessarily need parking for small buildings with really great walking scores. And I mm-hmm. am 10 feet, not maybe 10 feet, I'm 50 feet from a bus stop. 50 feet from a Sobeys and a superstore, mm-hmm. like a, maybe 500 feet from the, the university. Like it's snugged right in the middle of everything. There's there's a car share parking spot like three doors down. So there's a car share right there. Like yeah. all the items that you'd need to not actually have a vehicle. 
And I realize even with some of my other rentals around, like people down here don't need parking. A lot of students are like moving here. They don't have a vehicle. So long story short, I was like, scrap the parking. We're just going to ditch the parking altogether. Yeah. So that's what we've done. We've removed the parking. Um, and now we don't need that easement. And so we're just going to go forward with that. And again, I think there's an appetite now for that, that style of building. So it's interesting you say this. I spoke to the developer of those buildings along Gottage and right? yeah. that don't have much parking at all. Yeah. I, I don't know what the ratio it, it's maybe 50%, maybe even less than, than 50% parking yeah. ratio. And that always kind of terrified me. I'm like, all right, you'll rent the first like 10, but if you got like 40 that don't have parking, how are you going to rent them all? Yeah. And he's like, honestly, it's no issue whatsoever if you have that sort of location. And the way he phrased it, he's like, um, you know, we get stuck in this idea of like th- something is, this is the case. And then a good exercise of being like, well, what if it isn't that? Yeah. You know, what if you open up your mind to the fact that that isn't a requirement? What would this building now look like? And I've struggled with that over um, at my Dartmouth site. Um, and I have uh, a buddy of mine, uh, Igor. Everyone knows Igor if, you're, if you listen to the show. Um, he just put up a property downtown Dartmouth with no parking and is getting inundated with requests. And it's amazing how I've banged my head against that wall for the longest time. And maybe this is me, you know, projecting my belief system, my value system where I'm like, I would never rent a place without a parking spot onto other people. Right. Well, but so here's something to consider too, is at the same time, the city is removing lanes. They want to shut streets down to make them not even be vehicle accessible. Mm Mm-hmm. But then, so why would we need, be needing more parking, right? Like the whole idea is they're pushing towards transit. They're pushing towards car share models. Everyone's kind of mumbling about the tech that cars may get to the point where they're driving themselves and we will, less people will need them. And a lot of big cities, their downtown cores, they charge really high tolls for cars to get in. And like even really big cities are cutting way more streets out that are not going to have cars at all, just like public transit and taxis. And so we're kind of going that way. And I'm not going to say anything now, but I think the city was... They've shifted their mindset recently. I'll find out as I go through this application. If they if they are not seeing that, I'm going to be kind of dumbfounded because I'm going to be like... Oh, no, no they're going to be all about it. I, I hope that yeah. they're all about it because then if not, they're kind of fighting themselves. They they're, also they're, get all jazzed up because they think it's so progressive. Like, yeah. and, and uh, like architects and planners love me. Yeah, just do a building with no parking. It's the it's future. It's sexy. It is the future. It's like... Ew, I don't like it. Um, Chandler's anyway. just jealous because he bought a building with a parking garage. And yeah, so now I he's, finally get a Ch- building with underground Chandler's parking. Like, I just got underground parking. Everyone's like, I don't know. It's underground uh, parking is so true. passe. I feel targeted by this. <laughs> I finally get underground parking at a building and people are like, nah, we good. We're going to walk. Yeah. Like, God damn it. It's, everyone's going to, they're soon going to be staking no underground parking signs. They're going to be running around with that. And that's, that's, <laughs> but. Anyway, so that's that's I have that going that's on. That's exciting, man. That's really exciting. Yeah, you're pushing that stone up the hill for a while. I have I been. know that battle. It's, um, it is a battle. Yeah, a literal battle. Um, in the meantime, I have a couple other sites I've talked about a few times on here. I'm probably going to work through them to get to the permit point. Yeah. So at this time, I'm prepared when the rates are lower and the, the time is right to Good just use time. Yeah. Instantly put the shovel in the ground. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, not really. I haven't made any other acquisitions. Been looking at stuff here and there, starting to shop a little bit again because I feel like there's stuff sitting on the market. But I just don't think people are feeling the desperation to sell yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that reason, I'm not like kind of jumping on anything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. No, I understand. Um, on the flip side, I did just close that building. People might have seen that on the old Instagram. <laughs> Congrats. Uh, but been talking about it for a while. So uh, we'll just really quickly unpack it. 12 units. 
uh, predominantly one bedrooms, a couple bachelors that I feel I can kind of convert into one bedrooms anyway, nice. and then a couple one plus dens. Um, it was 141 a door, which is a high price per door uh, for that size units, especially. Yep. Um, but it is a, a fairly well maintained building. Great location. And an insane location, and the aforementioned underground parking. So, if this was in like a, you know, one of the more, I don't know, I was going to use the word destitute, but that sounds pretty terrible. If this was in like a bad neighborhood, right? Or, or oh god, that sounds bad too. Whatever. If this was in a, name one of those neighborhoods, Chandler. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so these would start at 80k in the overall market, right? They yeah. would start at 80k nowadays, and then so On market 200. <sighs> Anyway, yeah. Um, I actually saw a property that I kind of passed at because they wanted 110 a door. And I was like, that's worth 80 to 85. And I'm not sure if I'd want to do it. And I see it on the market now at, at 114 a door. Is that the one that came up two days yep. ago? Okay, cool. Yeah. 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 I looked into that a couple months ago because someone uh, who actually probably listens to this brought it to me. And we were both like, yeah, it's not worth that. But anyway, not here nor there. Um, but that's in one of those areas. Um, and, you know, they want 114 a door. And it's all right. Well, what what do you pay extra for the fact he that it's, shall not be named? That, that's <laughs> decently well maintained. Um, that has underground parking, you know, vinyl windows, and is in a marquee location. Yeah, like one of the most expensive price per square foot residential areas mm-hmm. in downtown Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I paid a premium for it, but I think it also represents a premium product. Yep. Um, especially on on the finished side of things. So uh, purchased that at one point seven million bucks for twelve. What do you units. project for rents on that? Once it's all cleaned up, Man. all said and done, what do you think a bachelor in a one bedroom and a one plus ten are going to get you? I I continue to be amazed um, because mm-hmm. some of the most recent figures are blowing my mind. Yep. Uh, I've been able to comfortably hit um, eleven seventy five to twelve hundred uh, <coughs> for renovated one bedrooms in a lesser location. Yep. Um, but but really good size one bedrooms. So in my head, I was like, you know, these will probably command 1200, 1250 <coughs> all day. Like they, they really aren't large units. I, I have to stress that. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking like 1250 for the one bedrooms, probably, you know, 1100 for the bachelors and then maybe up to like 1350 for the one plus 10. Since then, I think those numbers are low. Yeah, um, I think those numbers are low. Yeah, I, I think I'll probably be able to get those numbers and then some and probably be able to like offer parking at a hundred bucks on top of that. So I, I think What's the heating set up in there. So right now it's a mixed bag uh, because the heat is included, even though it's predominantly electric heat um, and the units are individually metered. Um, There's also a furnace though. There, there is a furnace. It, it's very strange. Like the furnace heats common areas and heats um, domestic water, but then the units uh, all have their own electric heat pumps. So again, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag, and all these things are what I'll go through and and change out and, and put them on their own utilities and, and all this stuff. Um, but I, I'm thinking now, all in when I account for for parking, the one plus den is probably going to be up around fifteen hundred. Yeah. Um, again, not huge, and and the ones will probably be around, you know, fourteen hundred, and then the bachelor's probably around twelve. Yeah, it sounds a little bit more. Yeah. More within market range. Yeah, so the challenge with this one, I mean, there's lots of challenges. Um, because of the low rents, and these rents range, I think, you know, 600 to 900 is kind of what people are paying there now, everything included. Yep. Um, my loan to value, as I mentioned on this show, um, we got 62% 
loan to value on Jesus. it. Um, so times 0.62. Yeah, so basically I had to come up with 650K plus or minus uh, plus closing costs, so plus. <laughs> um, and that was a lot of money. And the way I did it was obviously I had some you know, funds myself, but then put a second mortgage on one of the vacant land parcels I've had. And we've talked before about how vacant land parcels can be advantageous because once they have development opportunity on it, the value on them spikes. They don't service their own debt, which is challenging because you're not typically leasing any, getting any cash flow off of vacant property. Yeah. But there's tons of equity in, in my vacant land. So I put a second mortgage on one of those, which then freed up the equity to hit this larger than normal down payment. So yeah, I had to put 38% down. So if you think this is all fun and you can just go out there and like find a building, like this is cool. I found a building and I'll just put 25% down or maybe if the numbers are good enough, I can go CMHC and put 15% down or maybe even I go 25%, but then the owner holds 10% nah. and I put down 15 Like no, man, with, with the way the rates have gone with, um, you know, the debt servicing calculations getting tighter from the lenders, check out our Patreon because we talk about all that. Um, the loan to values are getting crushed and I had to pull like, every cent from every orifice I could to get this sucker closed. Um, As a reminder, like why he would go through this and like if you're buying a property just to hold it and this is happening, it's something you really need to consider. Again, we talk about in the Patreon, but in Chandler's case, he's looking at an end play, right? So he's, he's got his end exit strategy in place. And so that's where it works out for him to be able to do this, where he's going to put down more money because in the long run, it's, he's going to pan out that he'll be able to get a lot of it back and kind of keep rolling. Um, but if, if this was just a buy and hold, this wouldn't be an ideal way to park your cash. Yeah, I mean, I could just off the hop, like better manage the property, get it to market rents, do nothing other than, you know, turn over some tenancy, um, which is, is not as easy as maybe I made that sound, but, and then normalize things and do a basic pullout of 75, 25, like pretty easily yep. and quickly recover that, whatever additional percentage that is 13 extra percent I had to put down, which is not insignificant. Um, but when we talk about where those market rents are, I'm going to more than double, um, the, the net operating income of that property. So if you understand net operating incomes, it's not unreasonable to think by doubling my net operating income and probably lowering my multiplier, uh, because I'm going to get a higher, uh, a better cap rate. Or, yep. or raising my multiplier because I'm going to get a better cap rate. Like the building will probably almost reach a double appraised value when, when I'm finished. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so excited about that. But that is a, a major project. And now I have to go through the process of that word that everyone hates out there, rent eviction. Um, and this is the process I've done now for a while. I've got a pretty good track record with it, both in the sense that, you know, I get the unit vacated, but also I don't end up in the news a la Neil. Um, because I've maybe a, a softer touch than Neil does. I have I'm to more pause. I got to pause things here real quick. I, I, I made a big fuck up. I thought I had a noon appointment and it's 11 and it's 11 15. Oh. Uh, this pause is brought to you by Neil's poor scheduling. <coughs> fuck. He has a calendar conflict. Uh, if you've listened to this point and you're enjoying what you're hearing, you get any value, make sure you like subscribe, comment down below. All right, so we are back. We had a little break for Neil's uh, calendar snafu. Some mistakes were made. Mistakes. Shout out, Jeff, if you listen. Appreciate you being you. This is the old balance. Like, that was an appraiser at one of your properties. And my my manager's off this week. Josh, if you're listening, which I think you might be, 
How enjoy, dare you take I, a week off? Enjoy Josh. your week off. How dare you? No, you, you, and you know what? You still texted me. And kept, Get your he still texted me and kept things together. If he hadn't, if I, I would have missed it. Um, yeah, and you doing that reminded me that I was supposed to schedule uh, um, a building inspection for an insurance guy. And he messaged me like a week ago. I'm like, no problem. A week from now, no problem. And then I'm like, oh crap, that's tomorrow. And I Okay, let's so, get in. Let's yeah, get into yeah. our news stuff. I want to open it first with um, a couple messages that we got. Well, n- really one message. So I didn't finish. I, what were you talking? Am about? I done talking about the building? Are you done talking about the building? I don't know. Oh, what um, else did you have to say? All I wanted to say was oh, look, he's it has of, underground parking. No. <laughs> oh my god. Um, so yeah, we were kind of going into um, why you know it, it's it's a longer term play for me. I will get it there. It's going to take some time. I'm going through the renovation process effectively starting immediately. So. Um, you know, I've got my letter that I send out to people, which introduces me. But also, you know, I say this is what's going to be happening at the building. Um, let's work on this together. Let's make a plan because that's the approach that I take. You and just I've already check out my podcast, and you'll know what's coming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, actually already there's already a guy vacating there tonight, right? So uh, yeah. and he's got a one plus ten. He's got arguably the most viable unit in there. The challenge is when you're doing this scope of renovation, having one unit vacant, and you can attest to this. It doesn't quite solve anything because if you're converting the whole building, like upgrading to electric heat and putting it all in unit, you may have to run new service to the building and you can't just run new service to the building without some pretty serious permitting through Nova Scotia power. So you almost need them all vacant. And yeah, it's not the only way you can get away without them all being vacant is um, if they're all, if they're already all electric, there's furnaces involved. That's when it's an issue. If it's all electric, I know, you can kind of get I'm, away with single unit turnovers. That's what I'm really hoping, but I just but. don't know if the load capacity for the building is such that I can just be like, cool, we're doing simple upgrades and blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm worried yeah. we're going to have to run new service to the building, and I don't know how that's going to gonna fly. But anyway, all right. So, um, yeah, let's get into a couple things here, Neil. We'll, we'll transition there. You're about to make a move, so. Yeah, I was, I was so, sorry about that. I, I was just got all distracted and frazzled, and now I'm making a move. Um, but we talked about it, uh, I guess two episodes ago now, uh, I know it was one episode. I can't remember. I, I get lost with the posting schedule, but, um, I said Toronto rental rates spiked 20% year over year for the month of May and June. Um, and I was like, I wonder if where that data is coming from and if the mm-hmm. fact that yeah. it's being skewed by people applying with false leases to try and get their applications remained in, intact. Um, but I had a fellow Riley Norman, he's a listener. Thanks for listening, Riley. Uh, and he, he'll often message me with some information to kind of clarify some stuff. Cause he has, uh, lived and worked in Toronto. And he said that it is actually likely legit because they list a lot of their rentals on MLS. And so a lot of that data is actually coming from MLS. It's um, unbelievable how much better data they have than our system here. It is crazy. Yeah, well, and well, because they manage their rentals a lot more intensely, right? Yeah, but um, even just the residential resales, it's so much better than our stuff here. And yeah, and and so they they list their rentals through agents on their MLS system, and so he's saying that data comes from there, and it is crazy how fast things can swing, like the amount of people, the number of units, and the sentiment there. Like things will go up and down very fast, um, and so he says. In COVID in 2020, the reason it's up so much from then is because they was so down then due to the fact that everybody was kind of leaving that downtown core. Right. Yeah, that happened in New York too. There was this exodus of people and then all of a sudden like units were available. So it skewed that stat in two ways that we are having a jump in rental demand, 
plus we were comparing it to a down period in time. Uh, so he said, like, now that people are back in class, bars, retail's back to normal, he said these units are flying back up and filling up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of like a combination of everything was exiting at the time that we were comparing to, to now everything's kind of going back. But he says those might actually be legit numbers, and those rental rates are actually more reflective of where it probably should have been, what we have now, versus the kind of that weird dip that we faced in the early 2020 time. This actually segues to a question I have for you, and it was raised to me uh, by Ben, who also listens to to the podcast. Um, and he saw this article out of New Brunswick where uh, someone asked a realtor about the market and relocating buyers and so on. And this realtor uh, theorized that because of the hike in interest rate, while this was pulling down prices everywhere, it's also making it harder for buyers to purchase. Yeah. Right. And as a result, we may actually see more migrating buyers from areas like Ontario out here east. Because, yes, those prices are, are dropping in, in some of those major areas, but the ability to afford them is dropping arguably at a faster rate. And we may can not only continue to get the same migration of people, but even see more. What are your thoughts on that? I, I, I thought it was a really interesting take. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it, it seems it a is a water. very interesting take. Um, I don't know that housing alone is what forces that much migration. I think it's more employment that forces the migration. And I think a lot of people that you saw move here, moved here because they were on permanent work from home, uh, not purely because they came here because there was cheaper housing. Um, I don't know, man. Everyone, I every person that relocated here, like anecdotally, they were like, "We want a better quality of life. We want to be able to afford a house in the city." Yeah, but it doesn't like you're not going to have a great quality of life if you come here with no job. Fair enough. Obviously, that's going to be part of it. But like um, you can you can get by renting anywhere, but you can't get by anywhere without a job. Um, and so I think that plays a factor. Um, but I think if you don't see a, a shift of the ability to be employed here, and the only reason we saw a big shift, in my opinion, is because COVID allowed work from home. So we didn't get 10,000 new jobs every year. We just got 3,000 new jobs and 7,000 people that could take their jobs from Ontario and bring them right. here. That's an interesting point. And do you think that's going to slow down? Like, what are you seeing on your listings right now for inquiries? Like, are you seeing still the other province stuff? I think we a little bit, but not as aggressively before. I would say with confidence, every single listing before we got 20 offers, there was a couple... <clears throat> out of town, out of town offers. Um, now I'm not seeing that as much, um, and I'm even seeing some people who want to go back. And so I know a couple mm. that I sold last year uh, have been resold, and it's because they're moving back to Alberta or moving back to Ontario because Alberta is now having the growth, and so it's yeah. sucking all the people back up, right? It's yeah. not because Alberta got any more affordable because it's actually its housing price has continued to climb, but their job market has opened up because of what's going on with oh, oil and gas, going crazy, and they're yeah. sucking all the people in. So I agree to an extent, hmm. and there will be some people that get pushed out of Ontario because like now with interest rates, I have no chance of buying, and so I have to go somewhere to buy. Yeah, especially if you want to live in kind of close to a city yeah. and not be in one of these suburban sprawl areas because that's where – because in, in the city, like Toronto prices are holding up pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and the condo market's pretty strong because people can't afford other things, so they're buying condos. So in the city, they're holding up pretty good. It's the periphery areas that are getting crushed. Yeah. Um, so if someone wants to be close to like the action, close to in town, we still are way more affordable. And when they just got hammered on, on their ability to purchase there, um, it doesn't matter if prices come down there. They're not coming down as much as those interest rates. So maybe that pu- pushes a little more, more pressure over here. And I can say, again, anecdotally, I recently listed two, you know, 
really marquee properties but for very different reasons. One was in Halifax's North End, highly sought after location. Yeah. Another one was in kind of the surf community, seaside type vibe of, of Nova Scotia. Yeah. And on, I'm going off memory here, but on the um, North End one, I got three inquiries uh, from Ontario and one, I believe, from BC. On the seaside one, it was the same, about three or four from Ontario, one from BC, and two from New York that were Canadians who had ties to this area. The um, New Yorkers love our waterfront. I mean, the, the same thing they Still kept... Europeans. They kept referencing the ability to purchase, the quality of life, blah, blah, blah. Here's the other absolute frustrating thing. We had an accepted offer uh, on one of these properties, and the buyers had planned to live there some of the time, Airbnb the place out. They found out about this beautiful new deed transfer tax of 5% for non-permanent residents, which on the price point was going to be about $31,000. And they quickly said, thanks, but no thanks. So that extra housing tax that our government slapped on and that people were like, yeah, that's great. Well, here's a classic example of the person just didn't come here. And as a result... That money, one, doesn't go to the government, so they don't get it anyway. Two, the seller loses, you know, significant tens of thousands of dollars. Yep. Right? So that's that's who's going to pay for the tax, by the way, everybody. When they put that tax on, it's not the buyer that's paying for it. It's the seller who's going to get less money for his house because that tax has to be paid. That's all that's happening. Yeah. So there's a case of... You know, effectively, it backfired. Like, they don't get the money, so it's not going to anything good anyway. Uh, and the person who is very much a person who lives here yeah. loses tens of thousands of dollars. And uh, for all of you saying, like, yeah, that's great. We love this tax. I don't know when. Like, here we are in 2022, where for some reason we've been convinced that if we just gave the government more tax money, they're going to sort out all our problems. It is mind-blowing that people think that way. The, but, the ripple effect that it has, too. So that person doesn't come now. And so they were likely going to bring other like other people when they see like if I see a friend move somewhere that I'm close with, I might be like or or buy a vacation property there. Now I'm incentivized to come visit, and potentially do the same thing. Oh yeah, and they're coming there and they're spending money, but also the seller gets the money to then go and spend on something else, and they're very much going to stay here locally. Uh, so they're going to reinvest in the economy. Like it, it's the so, ripple is yeah. way more than the little bit of tax they're going to collect in the interim. Yeah. And again, that tax is going to come out of the seller's pocket, not the buyer's. Even though in the mid, in the middle it feels like it's the buyer. The buyer's just going to pay less for that property. Yeah. Um, so that was a, but, but the, the takeaway to return to our conversation is that I did see this interest from uh, people out of province. So I thought that was a, a pretty it's interesting an, take. It's an interesting take for sure. Yeah. And I think it does play a factor, but I don't think it's the largest one. I think it's one of many uh, that are, that are involved. While we have um, just a moment, uh, just a quick check-in on uh, Korea released their national data and that uh, house sales are down about a quarter in terms of volume. But more interestingly, perhaps in June, um, the actual um, average home price seasonally adjusted nationwide has dropped uh, in June alone by 1.9%. Doesn't sound like a lot, but realize that's in one month, you know, we have lost on the average house price in Canada 1.9%, which based on our average house price is about $30,000. Yeah. And that's just in one month. So uh, it's it's not a huge earth-shattering change in, in, in pricing. Billions of dollars, though, um, being wiped out across the whole market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, so it's it's something to consider. When the, when the market shifts, when the, really, when the stock market shifts a few points, and like we instantly wiped out $27 billion, 
that's the same thing. And that month we've instantly wiped out billions and billions of dollars. I, I yeah. don't even know how many houses there are. Let's, what do you think there is in Canada? 10 million houses? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's $300 billion. Yeah. And then again, the, the whole point, this is what the they were trying to do with this uh, monetary policy is make people feel a little less well off. Yeah. Because right? that's people now stressing like, oh, my gosh, I don't have as much equity as I thought. So they're less likely to go out there and spend and, and drive the economy. Yeah. Um, Tiff Macklem uh, at Bank of Canada uh, has said that their expectation, the Bank of Canada's expectation is by the end of the year, and realizing now we're almost at the end of July, um, he's saying by the end of the end of the year, he expects inflation to get down to 3%. Um, and then for 2024, the goal is to have inflation at 2% for 2024. Who said this? This is Tiff Macklem, kind of the head of Bank of Canada. Oh. He's also the guy that said interest rates would be low until the end of 2023, but neither here nor there. <laughs> okay. So, um, so very yeah. Very optimistic. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for what it's worth, uh, you know, the inflation numbers are going to, by the time this airs, the inflation numbers for June will be out. They're expected to be around 8%, like low eights, coming Eight. off 7.7 in May. Food prices are up 9.7%, um, and we're, that's expected to go up too. Maybe like today's society does work a lot faster than in the past where like where word spreads really fast. And so people contract really quickly and we're able to make the moves that we need to because we can get the word out to people. People can understand what it means. People are more educated now. There's more places to get information and recognize what you need to do to save yourself before it goes to the point of it boiling over and being really bad. And so maybe he's right in saying that based on what they can see and how quickly things are contracting, maybe it actually will by the end of the year uh, get to a point where... Well, major purchases are also literally at the at the click of a button now, right? So you can major purchase in less than a second, and you can also not major purchase in less than a second. Like True. the the speed at which money moves is is so much quicker, which is also why I think we're going to rebound kind of nicely by next year. But we'll get into that in, in another day. So, well, another fellow, I was going to say in, in response to that, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, he tweeted, and he believes that we're about to have the greatest sale on earth for things like crypto and real estate. Now, and he, he said assets. Crypto and NFTs are already, they're giving them suckers away. And he said assets, like cryptos and real estate. I, I thought it was weird that he tied those two together because I was like, crypto is something that we don't necessarily require to live. Um, I and think real estate to be relevant. And like crypto is like, isn't like all the issues we've already talked about before and everyone understands with it. And like, again, it's not a requirement to live. Real estate is like something that is physical, that you require to live, is in massively short supplied in first world countries. And so I was just surprised that he was able to tie the two of them together. I do, I do think that real estate is going to come down um, depending on the product. And, but we've been piping on for a while that crypto is going to come down and it did, and it came down a bunch and it makes a lot more sense for something like crypto to have a huge massive sale relative to it would for housing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he, he's kind of clickbait in that headline a bit because one, it already has happened in the crypto space uh, Two everyone, you know, it's a good heading when you throw the word crypto in there, people like it. And then three, now's a good time to be selling his book. If, if, if you, if you add the two together, you know, you're going to be right. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, real estate and crypto are going to be d- deep discounted. It's like, well, yeah, anything in crypto is going to be, and crypto is going to be deep discounted. Like my shoes and crypto are going to be deep discounted. Like he's a smart yeah. dude. Now's the time, like you said, to become relevant again, because financial education sells very well during times yep. of recession and hard times. And so his book has done very well during these times. And so he's going to come back around. He might have a new book coming out. I don't know. I have to check. But this would be his time to to shine. 
Um, yeah, we're not going to spend too much time today on the inflationary stuff because we've hammered that a lot. I just wanted to kind of touch base with people on that, what you know, the Bank of Canada is saying they're expecting by the end of the year and for next year, but also highlighting the food prices are up uh, significantly. You're all probably seeing that. And I encouraged people to Google farmers in Netherlands, uh, check out what's going on in Sri Lanka as well. Food shortages and food inflation is going to be the biggest story, I think, of 2023. 100%. I agree. I'm, I'm all, I'm totally for that. And I think it's going to be shock people. I still see it like grocery stores. We were freaking out about it last year. I'm talking about these bananas. I've been freaking out about not being able to get my bananas. I will say, I don't know if Barrington Superstore was listening, but they have a surplus of bananas now, (laughs) but they don't have all the other stuff that I need. Uh, For example, I needed, I was a dill. Lots of potassium. Fresh dill. Nowhere. No one's got fresh. The herb aisle was brutal. There was just nothing hanging. Comment there. down below if you've got the hookup for some fresh dill from my boy Neil. I could do for some dill. The salmon's now been consumed without it, but that's okay. Um, I've I have an article that I saw that made me think of you. Oh, okay. Nice. Oh, yeah, Let's see, hear it. It wasn't a Calvin Klein underwear ad. <laughs> um, so, anyways, this was an article uh, published by CNBC just saying a 28-year-old spent $8,000 setting up an Airbnb tent. And now it earns her $28,000 per year. And I was like, I know a guy that has a $30,000 Airbnb tent. Yurt, yurt. Thank you. Thank you. Please don't associate me with these (laughs) tent poppers out there. (laughs) So this this girl set it up in 2014. So she would have been, I guess, wow, 20 when she set up the tent. And the actual tent itself uh, only cost $300. And they put, spent eight grand outfitting it with some other, with some other items. Um, And she says it's, she's in Hawaii. And it's about 12, 12 miles from the Hawaii Volcanoes, Volcanoes National Park. Mm-hmm. And she rents it out on there. She said it takes about 10 hours of her week, uh, but she's bringing in about 28K gross. They don't talk about all of her expenses and, and everything there. Um, but I thought it was just neat to see, like, yeah. you can start on a small scale. And no, it's, this isn't necessarily going to make a ton of money and instantly just rocket launch you crazy far forward. But if you go out there and look, there might be some really cheap little parcels of land or maybe you can set up a partnership with somebody on their piece of land and spend sub 10K to get set up. Now it's probably a little more, maybe like sub 20K to get set up um, and get enough that you're going to cover all your costs, make some money. And within your first year, start making money, an extra $10,000, $15,000 in your pocket at the end of the year. Within a year or two, you'll have enough to get that down payment. Another one of these things we talked about before in an earlier episode is how to get your first five grand or how to get your first 50 grand to make a down payment. This is a unique way of doing that, right? And it's it's kind of not something you automatically think and you assume like, oh, you see these glamping setups and they're so crazy now. Like, yeah, the, the top Airbnb hosts have these like million dollar tent setups going on um, and they're renting them for $350 a night. And like, I could never get into all this. And like the land and their oceanfront and they have all these setups. It doesn't have to go that far because there's also a huge market of people that aren't prepared to spend three fifty a night on a clamping setup, yeah. or they're fully booked and they want to use these other options. So the tricky thing is you have to you know realize the zoning limitations of the area you may be looking and uh, check our last podcast. I'm less sold on this unless you manage the stuff yourself. That's actually where the money is is in the person who manages it and cleans it. Because again, I did my numbers again on that. And I'm like, cool. So like best in the best time of year, I'm making an extra seventeen hundred bucks a month, and then I'm like, and the manager is making. Um, fifteen hundred, and the cleaner is making seventeen hundred. So it's they're like making as much as you are. They're making as much or, or more than, than I am. So I've created a nice stream of income for them. But they're also working for it, and I'm doing it 
passively. But anyway, um, we I'll, have a, I'll, I'll agree with that too. Now that I have the Airbnbs, I'm seeing now. Um, I cannot wait for the Neil Neil's Airbnb am, report in November. It's going to be so. I good. have a very close relationship with the manager. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> my girlfriend. There's something about Company Inc. And, uh, and, company uh, pen, and it company is there is a lot of little uh, things that are constantly coming up. Um, we're hoping that we can again iron them out because we are still so fresh. There's a lot of small things that I think once we fix it once, it'll be done. Um, but th- there is a lot of working that's in bolts involved in kind of making that extra bit of revenue. So it is hard work, but I agree. If you are the manager cleaner yourself, that's where you make the most money. Um, God, I, I'm going to stay there just to like file complaints with uh, Kristen and be like, um, what's the thread count here <laughs> at this place? Gonna, I wonder if there's a way to ban specific people yeah, on Airbnb. Um, accepted. But Thanks for listening. Don't forget, like, comment, subscribe. Do you have any questions about what we've talked about so far? Leave them in the comments down there. Second half of this episode, we're going to talk about what's going on in China. It's kind of crazy. There's a mortgage boycott going on right now. Think about that. And then we're going to get into these, you know, our top three mistakes that we've each made, uh, what we've learned from in our time so far. I was going to say, I have one other thing. Right. I have two other things I want to go over. Because I want to get into China, and then we got to get into our, our major mistakes that we've made. Okay, I'm going to drop these ones really quickly. So the NAHB... Um, housing market index, which okay. is basically the um, home builders uh, yep. index, and basically what it is, it's it's their st- confidence in the market, and it dropped twelve points uh, to fifty five out of hundred, and for new single family home builds, so that's their housing market index, no and basically it's saying that their confidence has dropped dramatically, um, and it's just to make sure, like you said, of rates and then the cost of construction and just. There, it's a sentiment thing. Like they're believing that their sentiment's dropping because the general public's is, mm-hmm. and so they're not seeing their product move. Um, again, this is the biggest decline since March of 2020. Everything goes back to March of 2020 because that's when COVID hit. Yeah. Um, but the before times. It's it's something very interesting to see because these are business owners. These are usually uh, older gentlemen who have been through, or females, but a lot of these are older gentlemen that that uh, have run these construction companies through multiple recessions or through a lot of different programs. And so for them to kind of say that. Is something really interesting to kind of keep an eye on, I think. And uh, also, it kind of like, shows where things are going. I've got a cool little example. I was looking at a facsimile, uh, you know, spec home that was priced in, in our system, and it was previously being marketed at seven hundred and twenty nine thousand. Yep. And the exact same home is now being marketed. And this is an unbuilt home, a facsimile. Uh, for six hundred and eighty nine thousand, and that's purely the price of lumber. That's your engineered roof trusses, like all that has come down in pricing. So that's interesting to see, also. And then a lot of builders now aren't pre-selling stuff at all. Yep, they're just not doing it. They're putting up model homes. They're getting foundations in the ground. They're getting things weather tight, and then they're going to put them for sale because once they're fifty percent of the way through, they already know what their costs are, what their costs are, but also like what the market's going to bear at that particular moment. Yeah, because some of them are like, oh gosh, you know. Are we up? Are we down? Like, um, so they're trying to time things. That's a major, major shift in our new construction. Speaking of new construction, I really want to turn to China here for a second. Okay, fine, boy. Good. Yeah. You have another one? No, I do, but that's okay. No, it's not that great. So go ahead. <laughs> okay. I just I'm I'm being respectful for our to our listeners. Yeah, that's time true. And 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 our time. We do have we haven't even gotten into our topics. So yeah. yeah. So. Obviously, a lot was made, and we talked about this, about um, Evergrande and a couple other major Chinese developers defaulting on debt. And Evergrande's the largest in the world, on a side note. Yeah, and this isn't like your housing groups that would be here, you know, your local home builder who maybe does 50, maybe even 100 homes a year. Yeah. These are like, they have hundreds of subdivisions, effectively, or building projects comprising thousands and thousands of homes. At once. At once. 
but there's more to it. So it's something like approximately, I've got the stat here, 70% of household wealth is uh, in China is held in real estate, Yep, which is not an insignificant amount. 30 to 40% of all bank loans, as you might expect, are in housing. And 30 to 40% of government revenue at the local levels comes from housing sales in the same way that uh, government here collects deed transfer tax. So this is just all to underscore the importance of real estate to the Chinese economy. Here, real estate comprises about 20% plus or minus of our GDP. Yep. There, it's even higher than that. So you're talking about the second biggest economy in the world, and it's skewed probably around like 30% of their economy domestically is, is based on these, these housing projects. Yep. So that's why uh, when Evergrande defaulted on their debt, like it was huge, Such a big deal. huge, huge news. Yeah, it's not but just there's a company, more to it. The country has taken a beating. So, the new construction market is different in China. You can, not only can you, but you are often required to finance the the um, home that you're buying before it's even built. So you have to go out, secure a mortgage, and start paying the mortgage. As the builder builds your home. And Jesus. this is what allows the builders to go out and get financing to build these massive, massive, massive building projects. Because no matter how big these companies are, no one could go out there and build 50,000 homes yeah. um, without, you know. No one would back that. No, no one would back that. So the way it gets backed is that the buyer starts paying the mortgage when it's still a hole in the ground. And That's while. Intense. Yeah. This is relevant for two more reasons. One, between 2013 and 2020, these developers only delivered on about 60% of the promised homes. That's, That's crazy. Super sketchy. Yep, super sketchy. But now, in, and I, gotta want, I wanna get the stats right, um, at over 100 unfinished housing projects in 47 cities and 18 provinces total, jointly, all the purchasers at those 100 unfinished projects have given notice collectively that they're boycotting their mortgage payments. They're doing that because one, the developer's not delivering. Two, um, the housing prices are in decline. Um, And three, they're just kind of sick of what's going on and how they feel they're being taken advantage of. So 100... This is not going to boil over well in China. uh, No kidding. The way they roll things, this is not going to go well. This is a massive mortgage boycott on a scale that here in Canada would, would be very difficult to even comprehend. There was one report that looked at something like 14 or, or maybe not even 14, maybe like uh, a handful, a small handful of these projects and estimated that it was approximately 1,400 people. And just one... Or like, one project. And he's talking about 100 no, like, projects like, here. It was something like it, they, they took a look at, I don't know, like 10 of these projects and estimated that those 10 projects comprised, comprised about 1,400 people. So when you think of what 100 of these projects in 47 different cities... We're talking thousands and thousands like 15, and thousands of people, people, probably more, probably significantly yeah. more who are just like, we're not going to pay our mortgage. The home is not built. You know, why are we floating this debt of companies that are increasingly becoming more susceptible to defaulting? Yeah. Right. They're not delivering so, on the product. This is a ticking time bomb um, in the Chinese market because their economy is so leveraged towards real estate. It is so propped up on real estate. This could really yeah. mess their things up for them. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what the government does. This is where I'm like. They have to somehow reinstall confidence in the general public while keeping things alive. And I think the only way they can do that is by 
like providing what they're like the product like producing but then they, I also know that they have like crazy amounts of inventory like they build cities in advance and stuff like that so yeah. they're in one of these places where like they might have like the largest crash oh it is, it is I don't a, know it is them like of, super yeah. intimately but yeah it's, it's a house of cards like yeah if if it's so hard to even grasp this, but if you imagine wherever you are here uh, locally, take like the biggest 10 builders, add them together. Mm. Imagine that all of their projects, people had to pay mortgages on them before they even started. Yeah. That it may take them years to deliver the end product. And then everyone all of a sudden when these tens of thousands were started, just decided, you know what? We're no longer going to pay this to you guys. And realize what that might do to the economy and the whole system as a whole like we think things are a little turbulent here that's crazy that's these, crazy these places face insane amounts of turbulence i'm like china i feel like it's gonna feel i don't again here, here here's the funny part though china is so big their population is so big that this might not even like you know what i mean it seems insanely large for us on the flip side for them, they're like, ah, 25,000 people are going to default on this. I think it's probably uh, more like, yeah, it's probably how more many, like how 50, many, 50,000 people. And it, and it's, you you have to think this sort of thing catches on and doesn't just well, Once go they away. see one person doing it, I think it's insane. But I'm just like, I wonder how China's going to like handle this. Are they going to see this as a big thing? Are they just like, you have to? Like, are they just going to like so slap far the down big, the, the law? The, the big banks have said like, we're monitoring it, but we, we think we can stomach the uh, risk and the debt servicing of this. But who knows? It's right? weird like, to me that you have to pay in advance for something that you're not getting. Because my other thing is, that's so how if, you're making, if you're making the payment, calls. then does that mean that the, ca- the cash in full has landed in the developer's hands? And then they're uh, mismanaging the funds, and then it's like I, I you're know. playing I, this game of like... Yeah, I'm sure... I, like a pyramid I, scheme. I imagine it's kind of like you effectively are getting a... What we would think of here as a um, construction financing, but then the funds are being dripped to the developer. Right, so that, the banks that's how are making it like bandits. It's kind of like a, an in between thing, right? But anyway, crazy stuff. That is insane. Yeah. So that was I, I got into that and I couldn't believe it. Every single thing I read, I'm like, that can't be true. It's like, oh my god, that's how they do. Is that. your that's first mistake on. on your list uh, pre-purchasing a home in China? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buying now's a, the time. A pre-build. Now's the time. But let's get into the next. So okay. we want to cover here. Um, we're gonna we're gonna limit it to three mistakes each that. Uh, if we were to, to give a lesson to someone to learn from those mistakes or if we were to do things again, we, we would um, be better in this area. Um, why don't we start with you, Neil Andrino? Okay, I'm going to open up my list. I'm just uh, messaging the people that I messed up with. Again, if you're listening, Jeff, thank you. Um, so I have a bunch, but let me... It's like, don't make me choose just three. Don't make me choose just three. Do you want me to dive in? Because I've got mine kind of organized into... My three. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, we have a shared one. That's underestimated time and budget. So I'll let you get into that yeah. one. Okay. All right. Yeah. So let, let's start with, um, you know, better strategizing the budget. This seems like an obvious one. And you may laugh like, well, isn't that the main thing that you should be focused on? But when you're going through the rigors of securing the deal and just working your nine to five or whatever the projects you have on, on the way to finance this purchase, it's hard to actually pin down that budget with the accuracy you would expect case in point this project that i this building that i just secured i mean i went through the the property maybe three or four times during my due diligence do i really think i could put a super high level detailed budget together um but i was 
you know, probably not, first of all, but I was also running around like a mad person trying to secure the financing. Yep. So the the diligence um, of my budget planning has gotten significantly better and I have more realistic numbers and I have these rules of thumb that I can go by yep. and my past experiences and so on and so forth. Um, but I haven't always planned that with the detail that I should. And yep. if... You know, and, and I'm going to try to be better on this particular project. And, and I've had a couple of recent ones that I'm, I'm working through right now to get really, you know, narrow in. And now that we're, you know, about 60% finished one and only about just starting the other. So better spreadsheeting on the budgeting, really laying out the pricing and the timeline. Um, and the advantage of that as well is kind of another mistake that I put in with this one is not better utilizing leverage to cover those renovations. Yes. So... Um, essentially I've been, I've secured deals personally, um, and I've trusted the process of being able to finance the renovations myself and, um, the things I would change about that. My main mistake would be one to be more diligent with the planning of the budget and two to then be able to take that. The, the advantage of doing that and having that information really clear is then you can go out and you can you know, leverage some financing to actually pay for those renovations. Yeah. Yeah. I would also second that. Um, That was a sharp learning curve with budgeting and time. And the biggest thing I think was, yeah, I think I can deliver on those original numbers and timelines that I gave, but two things, when you get really busy, sometimes you kind of end up doing a lot of things like I just do it. Second thing is you really need to budget both time and money for the unexpected. Um, and there's always going to be the unexpected in construction projects. There's always more scope than you think. Like it's not as simple as just changing a few things, whether the wires, the panel can't hold it or the, the pipes aren't big enough to, to hold what's going to be going through them now or isn't up to today's code. Um, or there's a uh, substance in there that needs to come out like asbestos or like an environmental issue. There's so many little things that come up or you get into it and you decide that your plans have changed. Like you can draw and design and plan to your blue in the face if you're renovating a place, not building brand new, once you get into it, you may have to change the kitchen layout or you may have to change the way the, the, the bathroom lays out. Yeah. And today, like it also is material supplies are constantly changing. You're like, yeah, I plan to do this, but now I can't get that material or that tub or that toilet or whatever yeah. it may be. And you but at least change. if you know you have a budget and it's laid out clearly, you can then send your contract and be like, this is the budget. Go get the different flooring as long as it falls within this. Exactly. It also becomes a lot more important as you go forward. Um, and you're borrowing a lot of construction money, they will be cost consultants involved who really kind of hold you accountable to make sure that you're following the original budget that you submitted and they're checking to see where the money's being spent. They want to know why you're going over budget on certain things, Mm -hmm. why you're going under budget on other things. Um, And because the banks are getting wise to the fact that people just throw in crazy numbers to try and get it approved. Um, So it's, it's, it's important that you understand that. And that's why it's good to kind of go in stages and learn on some smaller projects and be able to allocate that to, to bigger ones. Uh, also on the time, the last one I'm going to mention is tenancy rules can change really fast. And we both found that out because mm-hmm. we bought a bunch of buildings and right in the middle of it all, the tenancy rules changed a bunch. And then a year later, they changed a bunch more very fast. And it was kind of just a question mark for everybody. Um, so you've got to budget for things that you can't even control. doesn't matter how good you are. Government policy can slap in your face. And yeah, it, yeah it people underestimate everything. the holding costs and the lost lost income. The reason I put these two together, and, and you've done a better job of you know, financing your renovations. Um, I've kind of been, I've kind of been stubborn on my renovations and and paid them out of pocket. Um, but if I'm being totally honest and I'm really thinking about it, 
I think the reason I wasn't more proactive on seeking financing for the renovation is because I knew I didn't really have my budget that strong because you can only get that financing for your reno if you have a really clear, concise budget. And I haven't put the effort in tightly enough on, you know, having the numbers and having that presented well, because I take for granted that I kind of know the numbers and that, you know, I'm already mentally prepared for worst case scenarios and all that. But I'm not getting the financing because I'm not properly doing the budgeting. And that's a big error that if I were to go back in time, I would have sharpened that skill set earlier because especially for people starting out, they're just not going to have the option to, to, you know, pay for everything out of pocket. So you need to have that presentation. You need to be able to sell the bank on what is the work that you're going to do here? How's that going to add value? And it's got to look good and it's got to be accurate. It shouldn't be out of pocket too. It's not necessarily the best use of your funds. It's not. Um, and so we're going to do it. We'll do a couple episodes, Patreon, where I'll be doing some spreadsheets uh, going over budgeting. And we'll also just talk about best practices for budgeting and getting quotes, where to do it, how to do the comparison, kind of how to deal with contractors. We go over all of that. And uh, talk about the as complete fine uh, appraisals and, and how to reverse engineer that. Separate episodes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll go over all of those things. Um, I'm going to get into my, my next one. Um, and that is partnerships. And so this is like mistakes that I've made and lessons that I've learned. So I've made some really big mistakes with multiple partnerships that I've made uh, or had. And it, partnerships make a lot of sense when you're getting started out. And sometimes like they're a necessity because you don't necessarily have enough income or enough cash or all the expertise required to start a business or make the real estate purchase or whatever it may be. Um, and I've done both where I've started businesses as partnerships and they've failed and they've succeeded and I've bought real estate with partnerships where they've failed and they've succeeded. Um, and I'll give a little like overhead on both of them and kind of what I've learned from that. So uh, the first one, and I've talked about it before in my little, little bio episode, go back and listen to that. But I had the money for a down payment, but I had no formalized income. And so I had to partner with some guys yep. to buy a property. And we were all friends and we're all like, yeah, we all want to buy a place. And we were 19, 20, 20, whatever it was. And we were all super excited. And so that like put us together mm-hmm. and we went out and we were shopping houses and it's fun. Like when you're that age to be out shopping oh, houses, totally. you're feeling like a big wheel, you feel like a, yeah, a huge yeah. wheel. Like, and so <clears throat> you're, you're out doing that and we got a place and everything was pretty good and everyone's kind of enthusiastic to get started. Um, and we ended up buying it. And then as time went on, we realized people didn't kind of agree to what they're willing to do and not what they're going to do. And it's funny when we were setting it up, the lawyer was doing it up and he's like, have you guys talked about all this stuff? And like naive as hell, we're like, ah, we're good. Like mm-hmm. he's my bro. And so he's my bro. So, and what, once money gets involved and people start having lives and time goes on, like those things start to go to the wayside. If you don't have those things ironed formalized yeah. and ironed out, you're going to face issues. And so now whenever I go to do any of this with anybody and anyone who calls me asking about it, I'm like, Make sure your roles are like concrete. You guys need to know what you do and you don't want overlap because I followed this by doing another place that I bought and better partner, more involved, had a better understanding of like real estate, what was going on in roles. But we we chose the same role. And so we had the same (laughs) skill sets, which was really bad because that's not good either. We wanted to do the same stuff. And then the stuff that neither of us wanted to do, neither of us wanted to do. So it didn't get accomplished. Right. And so kind of like recognizing the roles and really ironing that out is super, super important and having an understanding of what people do. Um, and then again, I had a business and same deal. We bought the business and we got into it and we had the roles thing kind of sorted out. Um, but we didn't actually do a, a valid, uh, I guess, assessment of each other's ability to have the time in there. 
Mm-hmm. And so we made that mistake. And there's a couple other things with that business that I made a mistake with. And I'm going to cover that in a different point here that I'm going to make. But so that's like a high level. Again, I'm going to do, we're, we're going to do an episode on partnerships in Patreon. And we're going to yeah. go on, on like how to run a successful partnership and what things you should have in place before you even consider going to partnership with somebody. So, but yeah. I, I've definitely screwed up a lot of them. So what's interesting about that, I've always said partners are for dancing. And, <sighs> you know, in in spending time with you, it's more, it's opened me more up to the idea of partnerships and, you know, um, one plus one equals four. And, yeah. and you know, you can either uh, go fast or go far. One plus right? one equals like, 11. Um, all, all these things. And I almost put on here that one of my mistakes was not being open to partnerships, but I'm still stubbornly like, I don't know that partnerships are the be all and end all. Uh, I would have maybe put on here, like be open to more creative financing and things like that. That was potentially a mistake, but the partnership thing, I think you nailed it on the head. Like it is, you can't underestimate how difficult it is to truly find people that bring a balanced value to the project. I'm not talking balanced skill set. I'm not talking balanced money. I mean, balanced value and whatever, by whatever means you measure that value, which is very difficult um, to find that balance of the value people are bringing to the project is incredibly difficult. Um, You know, it happens that I've got, you know, partners on a couple projects just this year and it's been great because like, we know what value each do and, and we do very different things. You, you nailed the nail, you nailed the nail on the head. You, you hit the nail on the head. Um, <laughs> you know, the things that they do, yeah. I cannot do. Yeah. The things that I do, they sure as hell do not want to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you can start having success with partnerships. Um, my next mistake was, um, well, I don't know. It's a mistake. Like I tried, but I failed yeah. um, at good hiring. So my first, I'll speak for you. That was a mistake. What's that? I'll speak for you. That's a mistake. Is what messing up bad hiring? Yeah, yeah. It's a mistake. But like not I, hiring enough and making or messing up the hiring. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's integral, and we all do this thing where the first couple projects we DIY them. Yeah. Right. Because we don't have any money. Yeah. You know, and you have and, to. and and also it's the only way to learn. Yeah. So I remember one time I was putting down tile in this place and like the mortar was drying and I was there with my dad and we were arguing and I'm like, it's it's drying, it's drying. Like and you know I was so stressed out. And I'm like, I'm never going to do tile again. But now I know exactly <laughs> how to do tile, right? And man, 10 years later, that tile is still in mint shape because we yeah. put her down like, you know, it was <laughs> never going anywhere. Yeah. yeah. But now I know how to value, you know, one, like what constitutes a good tile job, like I'll be able to tell, and how much am I willing to pay for that service. So there is value in that. But then- And when there's too much mortar. There was at one point in time, like there's a lot on there. I uh, pity the person trying to take that tile up. Um, when I finally scaled up and I had a 12-unit building, I was still trying to piecemeal like, Oh, I know this guy and he can handle this. Oh. And then like this guy from high school says he's doing this now uh, he's doing bathrooms. Like, okay, cool. But he also says he can do drywall. Oh, well that's kind of convenient. Yeah. And I was like trying to piecemeal this together and everything was getting to like best case 60% done yeah. and a double the time. Quality wasn't there. The quality wasn't there and the, the speed. And here I am like, you know, I've ne- I'd never hired anyone before to that scale. Like yeah. I had service providers, but I'd never been leading a project where I brought people on and I didn't know what to do. And I was kind of in panic mode and I hit up uh, two guys who have been with me ever since and who have become good friends since. One was, uh, you know, my buddy Brian, who I'd known from demolition, but also, you know, has a, a team that does everything from flooring to tile to, to whatever. And then Josh, who's remained my primary general contractor on every project since. And I brought them in and I was like, I need your help. Like I, I said to both of them, like, I need your help. And the first thing is mainly 
like collectively they're like that person's fired, that person's fired, that person's fired. Yeah. They can't do it. They're not good enough. Yeah. Right. They don't work hard enough. The quality of the work's not good enough. They are over promising and under delivering. Do we have permission to clean house and bring our guys in? Best thing ever. Right. Yeah. And it was a hard conversation because one of these guys that hired, like I kind of knew and he was like, well, I'm owed this money. And I'm like, I went so, through it line item by line item. I'm like, that's not finished. That's not finished. That's not finished. That's not finished. I'm only giving you this money period. Right. And that was a phenomenal learning experience. Um, you know, I had to go through that and I, it's been better ever since. Those well, guys saved my, shout out Brian and Josh, man. Shout they out Brian and Josh. Ass, man. They saved Chandler's ass. Um, why did you hire the other people? Was it lack of knowing or was it budget? Uh, you thought you could save some money? Were you trying to be a friend? What was kind of the pressure that, that pushed you to, to it? Or was it all accumulation, like a combination of all of it those It was things? a combination of all of all them. But like there's a difference between the person you hire to, you know, do one little project yeah. at, at, you know, one of your duplexes. Pretty easy to get done. Right. And, you know, here I was scaling up from a duplex to a 12 unit. Yeah. And they're still in the in the lane of duplex of duplex, yeah. right? So like one of them promised, oh, I got these guys, I got this, and blah blah blah, and Nothing he didn't, came. yeah, right? He was basically outsourcing them to guys. Like, well, if he's not that great, who are the guys that are willing to work for him? You know, on a subcontract yeah. basis, they're not that great. And then it was just like showing up at ten, leaving at two, yeah. And I'm like, oh man, like that's not gonna fly, yeah. Um, but I knew some of them like pseudo personally, and they had done some things before for me in the past, which had worked. Well, but when it came time to scale up, they couldn't cut it flat out. They couldn't cut it. And so, um, you know, guys that I trusted and knew delivered, they not surprisingly had guys that also delivered. Yeah, it makes sense. They they work together. Um, One good saying that I've heard uh, and I, I try and use a lot now, I can't remember where I heard it, but is hire slow, fire fast. Uh, I know you say that. And and it, I it's so love important. It, it's so true. And I screwed it up with one of my first businesses is I hired fast and fired slow and it basically sunk my business. Um, and now everyone who comes to me asking that advice, I say hire slow, fire fast. Your employees can make or break you. Yeah. Your teammates, your employees, however you want to label them, they will make or break you. It doesn't matter how big or small of a role they have. It can, if it ends up causing you more sp- stress, it, it's just not the right fit. It is not working. They need to be yeah. there to help you. And this is something that I've learned too with that is hiring is a very intense skill. Like you, if you don't have that skill, then you need to sub it out to somebody else to do it. I've learned, I don't have a great skill at, like I'm not very skilled at it and it takes me a very long time. And so I've had to subcontract to get people to do it for me because I'm unable to do it proficiently on top of my workload uh, and pick out the, a strong quality candidates. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that was mine. Uh, my, my second main mistake after doing a better job with my numbers up front uh, is, you know, learning how to hire, as you said, and getting the right people that are going to build and help you through this project. You need to surround yourself with a winning team, man. You want to win? Get a winning team around you. Yeah. What was your second mistake? Lesson learned. So I'm going to, I got a bunch on here. So I picked three out that I thought were kind of interesting. My second mistake and lesson learned is not having my end goal in mind when I make a move. And that's been in real estate acquisitions, business acquisitions, Mm. um, things that I'm doing in my life outside of work. You really need to have your end goal in mind. I think that's eyes on the prize is eyes on the prize. I think that's so important um, to being able to continue to progress. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with is when you start to have success in one lane, 
you need to be able to understand like where is this going and then actually execute on that. Um, and so like the, one of the big mistakes I made was purchasing this business and it made sense because it kind of fit into my ecosystem of my businesses. But then I realized after the, the, when I looked at how much time it was going to consume and what it really was going to provide me at the end, I was like, wait a second. I don't need to do like it's not worth the dollars for me. It's not worth the time. It's not even yeah. worth the headache factor. I just kind of got super excited and just went crazy and started buying businesses and investing money all over. And I was like, was it really going to what's it? How's it going to benefit me at the end? And I even say this with like if you're investing in stocks and you like buy a play, you're like, OK, it's going to do this. And what, what are you going to get at the end? Like, OK, like, you know, like if it's a regular company on the on the TSX, like you're going to care. Most I'm going to get 30, 40 percent out of it in the next 12 months. If I only have $800 to put into it, will that $250 gain be worth the stress, heartache, and the loss of that $800 in the interim for me and the risk? Um, or for a real estate play, like and I've, I've harped on Chandler and made fun of him and all these things, does it make sense for him to go out, yeah, this, this let's say a four-unit comes up and it's an amazing deal, does it make sense for Chandler to buy that or is he now past that where his time, energy, and effort, it might not be worth the execution? Um, because it starts to spread you really thin. So I've made that mistake, like I said, with businesses. Um, and then even like, yeah, like there's so many things, even with your, your stuff at home, like the decisions that you make, does it make sense? And I see this with a lot of business owners that they get into their business, they start chugging along and they want to get to that next step, but they're unable to kind of like go of what they have going on now because they never understood what the yeah. end goal is. Like, well, I started making money. I was doing tile and then I started making money by throwing in decks so I added decks. I'm like, well, what was the end goal of your business to begin with? And why did you throw in the decks? Because yeah. you made an extra $3,000 that year, but you stretch yourself so thin, so much more headache. You're running around like a lunatic. Does yeah. that actually make sense? What's your end goal? Oh, your end goal is freedom. Okay, well, are you, are you achieving that freedom any faster by doing this? Yeah. Right? And one bad deck job, now you've lost all those $3,000 that you ever made. Yeah. So it, 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 that was, I think, a big one. It's just not always having your end goal in mind. I didn't to get started. I learned it, I'd say, a few years ago, and it's really benefited me now. And I mean, I'm even transitioning in my businesses now. And the only reason I'm able to do it with confidence, even though it, it's hurting right now and it's, it seems like a super crazy thing is because I'm like, this is my end goal. I've written out my plan. I know what I'm doing. I got to follow it to a T. I'm going to piggyback on this because the next, my third uh, mistake that I had was, uh, or lesson learned was not get sidetracked, yeah. right? Which is the exact, same, exact same, same thing. Um, and I am guilty of always being like, ooh, I want to do that deal. Ooh, I want to do that deal. Ooh, I want to do that deal. And there was a really pivotal point. Um, I made fun of him for buying a six unit. <laughs> that's a good investment. <laughs> I'm still going to do well on that. Um, where, you know, I, I consciously had to turn my attention to my development stuff because it was the most important thing. Yeah. And I was neglecting it because I was doing other projects and I was, you know, selling and, you know, focusing on that side of, of my business. And I needed to fully turn my attention to the project. And it's a shame because as soon as I did, boom, 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 things started moving, right? We're yeah. making progress. And then the interest rate kind of blew everything out of the water. Yeah. So be it. Um, but it was a classic case of, um, they say, do the most important thing first. Yeah. Do the second most important thing second and do the rest of the stuff almost never. Yeah. Right. Like the most important thing that that's what we need to focus on. And I was very guilty of getting sidetracked over the last 12 months. Uh, one, you know, my sales and all that stuff, neglecting the most important thing to me, which is the development project. Um, then even crypto. Yep. You know, I didn't need to bring that into my life. Neither right? of us did. I got sidetracked, you know, oh, a little opportunity. Oh, I want to take advantage of that opportunity. 
it didn't one it didn't work out but two man that's not my bread and butter why did i get sidetracked i did not want to be a you know person who was in crypto yeah i got sidetracked yeah and then you know even with these side projects um, the one in Lunenburg that has the Airbnb, I'm still super jazzed about it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and going to continue with that one. Uh, the Truro one, like, was a great opportunity. It still offers phenomenal value, but it's not as quick of an in and out as I was hoping it would be. Yeah. Um, so that's got a lot of equity now tied up in it. And even like not that long ago, I was almost trying to buy a duplex in my backyard. Because it's in my backyard and I share a fence with it and I'd like to... That, that's a little different. That's a I little know, different. but let's still, it's like, my God, man. Like, what is the most important thing? Yeah. And so now I've pivoted a little bit here. We'll be like, okay, because of the interest rates, my most important thing is my existing projects and that model, which I've been successful at and getting that across the line to get my refinance, you know, and and wrap up what I have on my plate, which is a lot right now. Yeah. Um, so not getting sidetracked and you can go back and you can check an episode where we talked about like, do you, do you try to take both opportunities or one opportunity or how to be selective? Um, that's something that I totally agree. So we were on the same page there. Eyes on the prize, man. Focus on the most important one thing. And I had this saying too, like every decision now I try to look at, does this make me more of what I am, which sometimes can be fine, yep. or does this decision make me more of what I want to become, yeah. right? Just taking on this project, you know, make me more of what I am, which is like, okay, maybe that's fine. Maybe that's not. Or does it make me more of like what I want to be one day and try to find things that make you more of what you want to be one day and certainly don't do anything. It's like, oh, or does this decision make me, doesn't move me anywhere. It's not even what I'm doing now and it's not what I want to do in the future. So why would I do it, right? It's a good opportunity, but maybe it's a good opportunity for someone else. That is, I like that saying a lot, where it's more of what I uh, want or what I want to be. And I think that, or what, sorry, more of what I am and what, more of what I want to be. I think that's so important because I think even with all your career decisions, like if you idolize or want to be something so bad, then you need to make the decisions that help you go down that path and understand that it takes time to get there. Um, one thing I want to add, like outside of business, outside of money, outside of investing. And I had one of my best friends call me the other day and he's had this moment and I, I had it a few years ago. He said, even in his social life, like he's realizing like he was having FOMO before and he wanted to spend time going out and doing those things. But he's like, I'm realizing that me going out today to do X with everybody is not going to help me result with my end goal, which is to be, let's say, healthier or to push better in my schooling or to push better in my business. And they have a different end goal. So they're doing what they want to do. But I can't expect myself to follow in their shoes because so I'm losing track of my end goal trying to chase my friends or trying to follow what I think is right. So you really need to focus on yourself and be like, what is my end goal? And is this fitting in? And that includes your social life, that includes your partner, that includes all of those things. 100%. Um, yeah. So just something to consider. And it can be very tough when you're like saying no to your friends because you're trying to chase an end goal. But again, oh, there, if, there are shiny objects everywhere, man. Yeah, you right? need you need to be able to, to do that. Um, my last point that I'm going to make here, because we're getting kind of long and I have a bunch more. So we're going to do another one of these episodes um, is education, continuing education. I got myself so busy that I stopped continuing my education and I'm now feeling the repercussions of that. And that's kind of partly why I think selfishly I wanted to do this podcast is because it kind of forced me to get back into that mode. Um, But like a couple of years ago, like I would constantly be listening to things, 
reading stuff. I'd be sitting up all night watching videos, taking notes. Um, I was, I'd be messaging and calling every business leader, whether you worked at the banks, anything I wanted to get into, I'm like, oh, okay, who's the best at this? I'd be calling them, calling them until they'd sit down with me and I would get a bunch of information. And then almost, um, kind of in a cocky, arrogant way, like I started to have some success because I had been educating myself so much and then applying what I learned, Mm -hmm. I started to feel like I didn't necessarily need to continue with my education. And I'm now again, feeling that pain where I'm like, I've, there's a lot of things I could still learn. You never stop learning. And so there's a lot of things I still want to learn that I need to continue with. It also keeps your sword sharp, man. And right? that's like, where I'm facing it too. I'm feeling it now. I find myself, my brain doesn't feel as sharp. Like it honestly doesn't. Like I'm like, and, and I'm realizing it's because I'm not exercising it. It's a yeah. muscle. You got to exercise it. And I'm not spending the time to keep sharpening that. And like I was, I, it kind of really hit me there this weekend because I did my motorcycle licensing course and there's a little test for it. And like, <laughs> it's super easy test. I'm mean, super easy test. Obviously like everyone passes. So I, I, I passed, but sitting there when I was doing it, I was like, this is funny. Like I remember when I used to do my testing, like I could do it in two seconds. I'd have everything like memorized. I did engineering and like in engineering, you are trained like a, to a T to yeah. memorize and learn information. And so I was so sharp and when I ran my businesses, when I came out of there, I was so sharp, so motivated. And now I took this last year off to kind of stop doing those things. And I'm already feeling the repercussions on my ability to remember stuff and new things that I'm learning and my ability to pick it's up true. stuff. And I'm realizing I'm falling behind. I'm like, my business has grown, but my connections and the education hasn't. And so now my business is having to slow down to allow me to catch up and relearn and meet those people and kind of continue to grow. And also things change, man, right? Like, so if you're not still learning... You know, the you're dead the second you stop learning or growing. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten this why I've gotten sick pleasure of everything that's going on in the economy because I'm like, man, some of this stuff I haven't really thought about in a while. And this used to be all I thought about. Yeah. Right. And it's 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 been rewarding going back. um, And that's why all this bad news I deliver with like a smile on my face. because I'm like, this is cool. It's cool. It's it's, um, we're learning and it's forcing us to learn. It's forcing us to change. And um, it also presents a ton of new opportunities. But yeah, again, I will say it again. Just never stop learning if you want to continue to grow. I think, again, and not just in your business, if you want to be really good in your life, like learning about yourself, learning about your partner, learning about like anything, cooking, taking care of your house, taking care of your family, any of those things, like always got to be learning. Like that is yeah. such an important thing. And I think the second you start to let your mind slide and it's, again, like everything, it's so much easier today with cell phone, like that's a part that drives me nuts. Like I want to, th- like at nighttime, I used to sit down and read and take notes and write stuff out and write out my little like notebooks. And I can't, like I'm like addicted. I can't help it. Like I open my phone and I get on Instagram or whatever it is, and yeah. boom, I'm like, All right, I just burned that 30 minutes. And yeah, it's only 30 minutes or 25 minutes, but you do that every single day, and it makes such a profound impact on your ability to grow as a human. Like yeah. honestly, so no, it, it, that's it's my true. Number it's three. true. Uh, and on that, we're going to wrap it up here. But I think this is, was going to bleed into another great topic, which can be three things we did right. Um, because I think, I know you know, right. the time where you were learning and surrounding yourself with great people, that was something you were doing right. So True. we'll get into that in another episode. Yes. If you've listened to this point, you obviously get some enjoyment out of it. Please share this with someone that you know. If you think they would like it as well, like, comment, subscribe, and all that good stuff. Patreon coming out Thanks soon. Thanks for listening. Patreon's coming out soon. Peace, guys. Thank you for tuning in for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us a rating and send us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Master Keys Podcast. See you next week. When, 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 when I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh.